Psalms and gave everyone a handout to put in their Bibles. There are still some in the foyer if you'd like one of those, uh, which talks a little bit about the background of the Psalms and the way the Psalms are divided, the types of Psalms, and it categorizes all 150 Psalms into various places. So I'd encourage you to get one of these handouts if you didn't, just put it in your Bible and It's a great reference as you read the Psalms because studying the Psalms is like reading through a hymn book. I mean, it literally is a hymn book. And so it's not got a story, so to speak. It's really a book of five books that were compiled over a thousand-year period. So you'll see in your Psalms as you're reading through them that there are 150, but they're divided into five books Uh, The earliest was written by Moses in about 1400 B.C. The latest, the book was compiled. All five books put together were compiled around 444 B.C. with the return of Ezra. If if you feel like I'm talking in tongues right now, some of you don't have any idea what I'm saying, don't worry about it. It'll still be good. Just hang on. we'll, We'll get to place. And so we're looking at the various types of psalms. The word psalm comes from a Greek word. Uh, The word psalm is really a transliteration of a Greek word that means to sing a song on a stringed instrument. The Hebrew title of psalms is tehillim, which means praise, um, which we understand because almost every single psalm has at some point within it the word praise. Each week at the end of your sermon notes, I'm giving you the the psalms that I'm going to preach on next week so that you can read those psalms pray through them, meditate on them, so that when you come and look at that psalm, uh, when we look at it together, it won't be just cold. You'll have meditated on it for the week ahead, so be sure that you, you do that if you get opportunity. This morning, we are looking at Psalm 149. Psalm 149. Now, do you mind if I open the curtain just a little bit and let you see, uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz thing behind the curtain? Not that I'm the Wizard of Oz, but uh, just behind the curtain. When I'm preparing sermons for an outline, uh, I actually spend months trying to put it together. Um, You know, I've got the sermon each week, but I'm trying to be more diligent and work ahead and outline for sermons that are coming up in the months ahead. So, for instance, later in the summer, I'll get away for, in the month of July, I'll get away for a week and go pray and outline the, the, by outline I mean title and get the sermons ready for the fall, maybe into the spring, try and hear from the Lord and so for a long time, I've wanted to preach this series on the Psalms, so I've been kind of putting things together and kind of cutting and pasting them all together and putting them together, and then finally I put it in its final form and type up the 12 weeks that we're going to look at with the titles, and I'm getting somewhere, hold on, um, and, and put the titles, and so, um, and then I just go back to that thing, because I want to start afresh each week as I look at the Psalm, I want to look at it with fresh eyes and hear from the Lord about what he's speaking. So it's a combination of prep and trying to hear from the Lord in the moment. So um, like last week, I put Psalm 149 in your bulletin, put it down. I put Song of Wisdom, Psalm 149. We looked at it. I prepped a sermon starting Tuesday. I worked on it all week. Thursday evening, I, I get done with this sermon and I'm like, this is really good. This sermon, I really like it on paper, and I hope the Spirit of God will translate that into you today. But as I was looking about it, I was like, why did I call this a song of wisdom? I'm like, this is a great psalm, and I I love it, but why did I call this a psalm of wisdom? So I went back to my folder of my old notes to look at um, 
why I, I picked this particular psalm as the psalm of wisdom. <laughs> and actually, the psalm I picked as the psalm of wisdom was Psalm 49, not Psalm 149. And I went back and I looked at Psalm 49, and this is a psalm of wisdom, teaching me the Lord. I mean, the whole thing is about wisdom. So I'm thinking maybe I'll throw Psalm 49 at the end uh, as a real psalm of wisdom, not that every psalm doesn't have some wisdom in it. By Thursday night, when I finish the sermon, I'm saying, I ain't starting over and going for Psalm 49 again. Besides, I really liked what I had already uh, prepped, and you'd been reading Psalm 149 all week, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks for being honest. So we're going to look at uh, Psalm 149 together. And I called it a song of wisdom, but it's really a song of worship, and uh, it, it's really good. It's really good. I got Time Magazine in the mail this morning, and I'm, I'm figuring I may be about the only person. There may be a couple others here who look at Time Magazine, but I like reading Time Magazine. Here's the cover of Time Magazine. It says, how high is your XQ? How high is your XQ? Anybody know how high their XQ is? Does anybody in the world know what a stinking XQ is? I, I didn't. I felt like my XQ must be really low because I didn't even know what an XQ was. So I had to read the article when I should have been praying and looking at the sermon. So I'm looking at this article. I read, Tom, do you know what an XQ is? This is the next big thing among human resource stuff. Sorry to wake you, Tom, but uh, um, anyway, um, it's the next big thing. There were IQs, and then there were EQs, emotional quotient. Now there are XQs, and they don't, they're using X because they don't know what else to call it. Uh, but employers are combining data and IQ and EQ tests in order to come up with this unknown component called an XQ. And the next 10 years, they're predicting, you will have to answer anywhere from 90 to 100 questions to work at McDonald's, uh, to work at um, JetBlue, to work at wherever, because they want to find the right employee to fit. So what kind of questions you may ask are they asking on this XQ? How smart do I have to be? Do I have to study for this? Uh, I didn't have time to put them on, but let me read you a couple. Here's some questions. True or false? I never get angry. My parents praised me for my achievements. Yes or no? When I was young, there were times when I felt like leaving home. Would you like to be an art collector? Do you often fantasize about being famous? Do you find yourself getting angry easily? Do, you, do people say you are eccentric? And the questions go on and on. I found really fascinating this uh, whole section on competitiveness, um, which I don't know why, but I really liked the, some of the questions. Uh, true or false, life is a competition. True or false, I don't care if others are more successful than I am. True or false, some people think I am too competitive. Um, <laughs> true or false, there's nothing wrong with letting others win. False. No. <laughs> true or false, more harm than good is caused by competition. It takes a killer instinct to get ahead. I mean, it just goes on and on. These questions go on and on and on. And even the people who score these tests don't even 
don't want to let you behind the curtain, to use that analogy again, because they don't want to give away their trade secrets. I don't know about you, but this sounds like that medicine guy who rolls into town on that wagon and says he's got this oil that he'll sell you to. There's an aspect to it that is just an unknown. I wish I had thought of it because people are making millions and millions of dollars doing these tests. How do we know when we read something like Psalm 149, which is an incredible psalm, how to take it, how to look at a psalm like this, and, and our perspective of where we are in life and culture will give us a totally different perspective on this psalm if we filter it through our experience rather than the totality of the Word of God. And again, I'm going to keep coming back to this again and again because it is the spirit of our age where we, we determine what is true based on our experience and our emotions rather than God's spirit and his truth. Do you hear me? So if we even look at Psalm 149 through our own emotion or our own experience, we'll come up with one perspective versus if we try to look at it in the totality of Scripture and what is God trying to say to us. During the 16th and 17th centuries, the Psalms uh, became very special in the world. I mean, uh, among believers particularly. It was a time of great persecution. The Reformation was happening, but on all sides, from, from the Protestant reformer to the tortured Roman Catholic, the hunted Huguenots, all, all of them saw themselves somehow in David, who was fleeing to the hills, and his, his oppressors were trying to kill him. And so they saw psalms as a, as a refuge for their soul. They would go to the gallows, they would be burned at the stake, they'd be tortured on racks, all while singing psalms of comfort and psalms of joy. Just like Paul and Silas, who sang a hymn while they were in prison, probably a psalm of some sort, praising God, they too leaned into the psalms, and the psalms became a very, very important part of worship. It became elevated again, so to speak, within the culture of Christianity. But also with the words of the Psalms, fanatics denounced their foes, cursed them with the denunciations pronounced upon the enemies of Israel and God. With the Psalms, they they excused their own barbaric behavior toward others and their violence, presuming that this is what God wanted them to do. It was for an example, it was, for example, a psalm that Thomas Munzer, who is not common, neither of these names are common but in our day, but they were very influential during their time. Thomas Munzer used to stir up the peasants to rebel against the nobility at the beginning of the 17th century, and it led to the death of many, many peasants. Caspar Slopius, which I think is a great name, Slopius, Caspar Slopius, who through his book, which is entitled Classicum Belli Sacra, which means Clarion of the Holy War, used a particular psalm to stir up the Catholic princes across Europe to react to the exact same psalm that Thomas Munzer used to stir up the peasants. So you got 
this guy Thomas Munzer stirring up the peasants with a psalm, and this guy um, Slopius stirring up the Roman Catholic princes with the exact same psalm, and a war ensued that took 30 years and cost many, many lives. And it was cleverly named the 30 Years' War, by the way. All using the exact same psalm we're going to look at this morning. Psalm 149 as a basis and a justification for their war. We've struggled, Christians have struggled with the concept of Christ's peace and God's judgment and the love that we're to express to one another versus the either fighting or legalism or even truth of God and trying to balance how do we come out on the other end? What is right? Is there such a thing as a just war? The pendulum has swung mightily throughout history from one side to another. And at different periods and in different ways, people have argued this course. Uh, I, I couldn't find the article again, but weeks ago I read an article which was, um, which was calling Christians to warfare against ISIS and quoted Psalm 149, saying, if we're being beheaded, we should behead. We should respond. We can no longer sit back and let this evil prevail in the world. This is a just war. Let's look at Psalm 149 together. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to put the words on the screen, and we're going to read it together. I'm going to try and do this as much as we can, because the Psalms were an expression of public worship. And so we're going to read this psalm together, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to, we're going to look at it. So here's Psalm 149. Read along with me, and let's praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. Lord, we pray this morning that as we praise you and look at your word, that truth would prevail in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we thank you. Spirit of God, uncover for us the word of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the words of wisdom that are in this psalm. First point is this. We have a song. We have a song. It says in... Uh, verses 1 through 3, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord what? Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker, let the people of Zion be glad in their king, let them praise his name with dancing and make music with him, 
to him with tambourine and harp. Historically, this psalm is set when the nation of Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity. Uh, for those of you who are not quite up on your uh, ancient Israel history, remember they're, they're, the, the southern two tribes are carried off into Babylon for a period of years, 70-something years. That's the period when Daniel wrote and other things occurred. And then they're sent back after the captivity, and this psalm probably is a result of that. So they're saying, hey, things have changed. We don't have a king anymore. We've been devastated. We've been in captivity, but now we've been set free. Sing to the Lord a new song. Let's praise him. He's delivered us. We're here. Let's praise him with harp, dance, tambourine. Let's sing to the Lord. The emphasis here is on worship. And it's on worship in a way that we see that the object of our worship is God as our creator. The means of worship is us, all of us. Dancing, singing, praising. It's not limited. We are the vehicle. And the means, the method of our worship is however we want to express it to God. Worship should never, listen to me, worship should never grow, grow old or dull. We are called to sing to the Lord a new song because of what he's done in our lives. In other words, I, I find great, and we're going to talk about some old hymns today, but I find great comfort in old songs, but there's also power in the new. Because it's expressing what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives today. It should be a combination to me of remembering and recalling and the the theology. But there should also be an expression that says, um, his mercies are new every morning. Sing to the Lord a new song. One of the best known hymn writers of the 1800s, the 19th century, was a woman by the name of Frances Jane Crosby. And I'll give, her, I'll give her backstory in just a moment. But uh, Frances Jane Crosby was better known as Fanny Crosby. And she wrote over 9,000 hymns. 9,000 hymns. Busy woman. At one time, the Baptist hymnal included 16 of Fanny Crosby's hymns. She was by far the number one author of hymns. Now remember this when I say this. Hymns are the words, not the tune. When I say a hymn, she's the, the hymn writer, which means she wrote the poetry that goes along with it. And then you have the hymn tunes that go on top of it. So what she wrote is the words to all of these hymns. Some of her best-known hymns, just to, to give you a couple, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. Praise Him, Praise Him, Jesus Our Blessed Redeemer. I want to sing every one of them. Uh, Tell me the story of Jesus near the cross. All the way my Savior leads me. And probably, I would say by far, her best-known hymn is Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. In her day, Fanny Crosby's songs are said to have attracted as many people to Jesus as the preaching of Dwight L. Moody. Now, Dwight L. Moody was the Billy Graham of the 1800s of his day. But Fanny Crosby's hymns became so popular that people would come to hear her hymns sung. In churches all over America and Europe, there were people who complained, listen to this, complained about this new kind of music. They complained about the hymns of Fanny Crosby. Ira Sankey was the worship leader for Dwight Moody. 
And so he started introducing these psalms, uh, these hymns of Fanny Crosby. Now, Fanny Crosby's hymns are a type of hymn. They're called a gospel hymn, not like gospel like we think of Bill Gaither gospel, you know, kind of sound, but more, uh, they were songs of human reflection. I mean, if you look at them there, there's a lot of personal pronouns, I and me and my story and what God has done in my life. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Uh, And so... Ira Sankey, when he started introducing these songs of Fanny Crosby in their meetings throughout Europe and America, he said that he had to sing them as solos because people, many people wouldn't join in. They weren't used to this type of song. But as time went on, thousands and thousands of people began to join in the singing of these songs. And even then, at certain times, Sankey in his biography, biography reports that people would walk out during the middle of the singing of Blessed Assurance saying, you're singing human hymns, human hymns, they would cry. Because they were used to singing the Psalms or maybe the hymns of Isaac Watts or maybe of Wesley, but these human hymns they did not deem as acceptable. That seems strange to us now that someone would be get offended over a guy playing a pump organ. For those of you who don't even know that is, you pump air and played at the same time before electricity, a pump organ, and singing Blessed Assurance. To us, that seems unimaginable. But every time a new song comes on the scene, people are, are we're offended. I mean, honestly, fullness is a result of the fact that traditional churches 22 years ago didn't want contemporary music within the context of their place. Now, people are doing it all the time, Eventually, new songs, if they're of the Lord, become accepted as the norm. But whenever they're introduced, they are generally rejected. Here's the point, though. The point is this. We can't live on yesterday's manna, so to speak. We need to keep hearing from God. Our relationship with God is fresh. We need to keep hearing from his word. We keep needing to express new songs. I'm not saying throw out the old. Great to be woven in. Think of it. Pray about it. Use it. But we need to sing a new song. And we all, we all have a song. Some of you may not want to sing it publicly. Um, be my view. But um, you still have a song. Sing it in the privacy of your home. Enjoy the presence of the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. I would even encourage you to make up a song to the Psalms as you sing them. I mean, don't be embarrassed. It's just you and God. And he's not going to like... That was horrible. I mean, our best songs before the Lord can't even compare to, I think, the music of heaven. So um, just go with it. Sing to the Lord a new song. Who knows? Maybe God, you'll find yourself incredibly anointed to sing before the Lord. We all have a song to sing. Here's the second point. We are part of the saints. We are part of the saints. Now, this is a theme that I keep coming back to over and over again which is against the individuality of the Christian American mindset. We are a part. God is looking for a people after his own name, and we are a part of that people. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. Two remarkable truths here that we find in these verses. First... God actually takes delight in us. I said this earlier when we were doing worship together. 
It's incredible, isn't it, that God takes delight in us? Many of us think of God as on this throne. He's, he's way distant. He's far from us. He's like, he's God. He's there. And we just have to worship him because he's great and glorious and magnificent. But the psalmist is saying, look, God loves us. God takes delight in us. And Zephaniah, he rejoices over us with singing. Kind of a picture of God dancing over us and singing at the same time. We need to see the joy that comes in knowing the Lord. Second, he crowns the humble with salvation. We are saved and are co-heirs with Jesus. These two truths that God loves us and delights in us and we have been saved because of what Jesus Christ, that makes us saints. I, I know some of us probably didn't act like saints even when we were getting ready for worship this morning. We're getting ready for church. You've got kids to get together. You're trying to get out of the house. Your wife is late. Your husband is nagging. Wait a minute. Um, uh, what? <laughs> it just stirs us up. And we don't feel like saints. But God has made us saints together. We are his. And as a result, it says we get to rejoice on our beds. Now, this is not, this is not a, a picture of just saying, I'm going to stay in bed and I can praise Jesus in bed. I don't have to go to church. I'm going to, work, I'm going to go to Bedside Baptist today. I'm just going to stay and worship here. The bed is a picture of sickness or distress or it's a picture of even in really, really, really hard times. When I'm alone and things are going really bad, I can still rejoice in God. I can still praise him because I may look alone, but I'm not alone. I have God delighting over me, which is a great picture, and I'm a part of the saints. Even though I may not see saints in my bedroom at the time and things are going bad, I have others who are lifting me up and praying for me. Fanny Crosby had a brilliant mind. I mean, to write 9,000 hymns. But even as a child, she had memorized portions of the Bible, large portions. By the age of 10, she could recite the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament from memory. She had all four Gospels, Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon all memorized. I don't know who got her to memorize the Song of Solomon before 10, but she, she had, it, had it memorized. She had natural musical aptitude, could play the harp, piano, and guitar. One of the remarkable things about Fanny Crosby is she was blind. At the age of two months in 1820, she got some sort of virus, and her normal town doctor was out of town, and another doctor came to treat her, who it turns out was not a doctor at all. He was literally a medicine man, a quack, and he put mustard poultices on her eyes so that when she recovered from her sickness, she was blind. A few months later, after that, her father died. Her mother had to go to, was forced to work as a maid in order to support her family. Her grandmother raised Fanny. And you would think somebody with this background, all of this stuff going on, would be hardened and bitter about the harsh trials of life. 
But instead, from an early age, she rejoiced. There's a poem that she wrote when she was eight years old, eight years old, that says this, Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. A remarkable perspective to me of an eight-year-old girl who has every reason to go another direction. When she was older, at the age of 23, she addressed Congress. She met the president. As a matter of fact, she met every living president of her day. A well-meaning preacher once told her, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Here was Fanny Crosby's response. Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one request, I would have asked to be born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. She wrote a hymn that said, And I shall see him face to face and sing the story saved by grace. One of my favorite hymns, Winter, if you would help me, one of my favorite hymns is um, a song called My Savior First of All. If you'll forgive me for... um, trying to figure it out as we go along. I, I, I love the words to this, to this hymn. And I'm going to put my glasses on so we can see it. The, tone, uh, the tune is probably a little older. It's got that feel to it, uh, an older gospel song. But listen to the words. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, When the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know Him, I shall know Him, and redeem by his side I shall stand I shall know him I shall know him and redeemed by his side I shall stand it's bad when you can't see with your glasses or without your glasses I'm going to keep singing though and if you know the song you can join me oh Uh, Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I see his blessed face and the brightness of his brightly beaming eye. How my full heart shall praise him for his mercy, love, and grace that prepared for me a mansion in the sky. Here's the final verse. Be glad. Here we go. And oh, what is the final verse? Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white, he shall... I can't see it at all. In the glad song of ages I shall mingle with delight. But I long to meet my Savior first of all.
I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him, by the print of the nails in his hand. To me, it's a picture of the truth that no matter what is going on, that we as saints have the opportunity to praise the Lord. We are never alone because God loves us and delights in us and we're part of the body of Christ. The message says this, and why? Because God delights in his people, festoons plain folk with salvation garlands. Let true lovers break out in praise, sing out from wherever they're sitting. God loves us. God loves us. We have a new song. We are part of the saints. And finally, we wield a sword. We wield a sword. Look at verses 6 through 9, the most controversial part of this passage. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. There's a character in the Bible by the name of Lamech. Lamech is listed in Genesis chapter 4. He is the great, great, great grandson of Cain. Uh, You'll remember Cain, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. God curses Cain, sends him out. Cain marries, has some children, and eventually comes down to this guy named Lamech, who is listed in Genesis 4. There's another Lamech, by the way, uh, mentioned in Genesis 5 as the father of Noah. Not the same guy. Same, Same name, two different guys. Lamech is known for several different things. He is the first polygamist in the Bible. He's got other problems, but he's the first one who is mentioned to have married two different women. And these two different women, their names both mean beauty in different ways. He was attracted to beauty. He had three sons. Their names are Jabal, the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Jubal, the father of all who play the harp and flute, musicians. And Tubal Cain, the father of those who forge tools out of bronze and iron. So I think their names are pretty funny Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal. Uh, I don't know who you're calling at any particular moment, but each of them went a different direction, but is called the father of like shepherds, father of musicians, father of those who work with iron and steel. He's also credited with the first poem or song in the Bible. In Genesis 4, Verses 23 through 24, Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wise of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. There's a lot in this passage that points to other things, such as remember when Jesus, Peter said how, Disciples said, how often shall we forgive? Seven times. I mean, there's, the sevens are always important. But Lamech is basically, 
This is a song of violence and of murder. He's basically saying, I'm able to take care of myself. And this is the first indication of songs of just purely human experience, many of which include very dark themes. Many commentators have called this song the song of the sword. The song of the sword is how it's known traditionally, even though there's no, I know you're looking at it and you're like, where's the sword? There's no sword mentioned, but the implication historically and among Jewish scholars is that um, Tubal-Cain, who was the father of those who forged instruments out of iron, uh, forged his father a sword. And as a result of one of the first swords, Lamech becomes independent and says it puts into his hands an instrument of destruction and an instrument of self-autonomy. It is a song of murder. It's the first of all country, rock, hip-hop songs. I mean, it's like saying I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Who can name anyone? There you go, Johnny Cash, Folsom Prison Blues. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. I mean, how many songs do we have like that? It seems like most of our popular music is inundated with songs of self-autonomy. Among other things, it also shows the progression of sin in families. Cain murdered and tried to hide it. Lamech murders and now boasts about it. Writes his own song says, hey, come on, bring it on. Lamech and his sons, by the way, are the last who are listed in Cain's line. After this, Cain's line, descendants, disappears. And in the next verse, you see such a stark contrast. The gap, commentators say, between verses 24 and 25 are remarkable because in 25, it comes back to this idea that God looked at Adam and Eve, and they conceived another son, a son by the name of Seth. And it's from the line of Seth that the ultimate deliverer, Jesus, is going to come. It will lead to a new Adam, the one who delivers. The sword symbolizes power. It speaks of war, and throughout the scripture, it's used a lot, even into the book of Revelation. Remember uh, the idea of the red horse, the rider of the red horse. Uh, In the apocalypse, he carries a sword in his hand, but there's a greater sword because uh, John sees in Jesus this picture that out of his mouth comes a sword, and on the thigh of Jesus is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, to me, there are two paths when it comes to the sword. There's the way of self-promotion, the way that says, I can do this, I can take care of myself, I'm independent, the the song of self-autonomy. And then there's the way of the sword that's the way of self-denial, that says, it is through Christ, it is through him that I am delivered and set free and that I'm going to make I'm going to achieve the destiny. The New Testament talks about this sword that we as believers have been given. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, part of it is take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, for us today, it's a time of grace. When we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers five years ago I think it was about five maybe longer ago we had a guy uh, appear at our service carrying a large uh, like gym bag a big big bag and he came down and he, he came down right here in this area and said probably I think he was on the same row as the Hawkins right in this area but he had this big gym bag slung over his arm now this was right after there had been some shootings in churches out in Texas so I'm sitting over here and I see this stranger walk in and sit here with this big gym bag I mean he could have been carrying who knows what I mean it was not like a little it was a big one so uh, I turned to Chris behind me and said, hey, Chris, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with this guy with this big gym bag sitting over here. Um, what, I, I'm going to do this. You know, I, truthfully, I'm thinking, man, I, if he opens fire, I got nowhere to hide. You know, the, the, I got nowhere to go. And I don't want anybody else hurt either. But uh, <laughs> he's sitting right here. And <laughs> so I said to Chris, we're going to do this greeting. And would you go back and let uh, the ushers know just to come have this guy step out, ask him what's in the bag, and um, just have him leave it behind the welcome counter. Well, by the time Chris got back and the ushers had said a couple of things, the next thing I know, 10 people in our church had gone to their cars and gotten guns. I mean, I, I, I had no idea we were packing heat around here like we are. And I know that, yeah, I know some of you, I know, I know some of you have them in your purses right now a little scary for me. I'll try to be unoffensive. I just had no idea. I don't even own a gun. <laughs> we have this, I'm not, if you want to own your gun and carry it in your glove compartment, that's up to you. I understand. You let your conscience be your guide. But there's this idea of self-autonomy that we have, that all I need is this. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to take care of me and my family. And you know what? You can have the biggest stinking gun in your car you want, but ultimately the one who takes care of you is God. Ultimately. He's the one who provides care for you. And we must keep walking the path of self-denial. Don't, don't, please don't go away saying, oh, Bart doesn't think we, anyone should ever own a gun. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, where's your faith? Where's your dependence? What are you leaning into ultimately? And I would say, from the time of Genesis on, we have this tension that is constantly at work in our lives to say, all I need, I can be autonomous. I can do this myself versus the picture that says, look, I'm going to live a life in which I wield the sword of the spirit. 
Now, don't, again, don't mistake what I'm saying by this to say you are living a pacifist lifestyle because I believe Christians should be the most active, most, uh, um, the people standing on the front line saying we're involved in a battle. But it is not a physical battle. It is not a battle against flesh and blood. It is a battle against principalities and powers, and we need to wield the weapon. We have a song in our mouth and the sword of the Spirit in our hands. We have the Word of God. And, and, and I have to say to you today, you need to be battling over your family. You need to be battling for the destiny of your children. You need to be battling for the destiny of your marriage and relationships. You need to be battling for the Word of God to be spreading out the gospel, the good news. Because there is power in the Word of God. There is power in what he wants us to do. Even in uh, Acts, there are two rulers who listen to Paul preach the gospel, and one of them says to another, another, Agrippa confesses to a guy named Festus, another, another brother. Uh, Agrippa confesses to Festus that he was nearly persuaded to become a Christian by the preaching of Paul. Because of the gospel being proclaimed. Listen, there's power in the word of God. What word are you speaking in your home today? Are you speaking words of life, of self-autonomy, of selfishness? Of Are you speaking words of life? Words of freedom. Words of deliverance. Words that will direct your path forward. I I do believe in this psalm. I believe that God has given us a song to sing, a song to sing among the saints, and it is this, there is power in the word of God. Do you believe in that power? Do you believe that God's word is actually active and powerful? Then begin to speak it in your home. Listen to the words of this psalm again and just receive it this morning. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. Lord, we thank you this morning. And we pray that indeed we will be a people who worship and praises and exalts your name. Lord, we thank you that it is by your might and by your power, by your great hand that we are delivered and set free. And Lord, this morning I pray that the word would just permeate our lives, that we would see that there is power in the word of God and that the word of God would set us free to become all that we're supposed to be. Lord, Let us praise you with the new song.
Let us see that your mercies are new every morning. Let us rejoice in the fact that we are the people of God who survive. We live and move our, and have our very being by your name and your word. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.